All right, Genesis chapter 16. Last time we went down as far as verse 6 there in Genesis 16. And if you remember at this point in time, God has given to Abram his promise that through him uh, all nations of the earth would be blessed and that through uh, his seed, that is uh, through one of his sons, uh, not only the messianic promise would come, but that God was going to make a great nation uh, of Abram's family line. But yet at this point, up to this point, ten years into that, uh, Sarai and Abram are still struggling with barrenness. Uh, by this point, uh, God has spoken that promise to Abraham a few different times. He's confirmed it. Remember in chapter 15, we saw God demonstrate uh, this making of a covenant with Abram and again reaffirm this promise to Abram. But yet as we made our way into the beginning of chapter 16, we talked about how there is then a 10-year gap that transpires and the promise is still there in their hearts and in a sense... Uh, in their hands and it's in their their hope but yet there's no uh, fulfillment nothing has come to pass there's no evidence of the fulfillment of the promise of God that's been given to them they're still in this waiting process by faith believing that God's going to do what he said Abram is now 85 Sarai is now 75 for 10 years they've been waiting on the promise of God and then we saw as we studied last week from Genesis chapter 16 down to the end of verse 6 there where we left off that basically Abram and Sarai find themselves in this place where they try through the efforts of the flesh to fulfill the plan and the promise of God for their lives and ultimately that results in nothing but a major problem, not only for their own personal lives, but a problem that is as far-reaching all the way down to our current day. And the peace issue and, and the struggle and the conflict exists over in the Middle East to this day really can be traced all the way back to one poor decision made by one couple who was trying in the flesh, through the efforts of the flesh and the arm of flesh, to produce God's plan or to fulfill God's plan for their lives and the danger of that that we can all fall into in their impatience they felt that somehow maybe there was something that they were supposed to do to cause God's promise to come to pass that they could somehow help God out and speed along the process and make it happen a little more quickly or or make it come to pass and just for context sake why don't we just as we bring ourselves up to speed where we're at let's just read down through those verses though we discussed them in depth last week verse 1 of chapter 16 tells us that Sarai Abram's wife had borne him no children and she had an Egyptian maidservant excuse me whose name was Hagar so Sarai remember proposes to Abram see now she says the Lord he's the one who's she says restrain me from bearing children so God's given us this promise He's told you that you will have a son, but yet he also, in his sovereignty, has chosen to restrain me from being able to bear children. And not only was that a public disgrace, so that weighed on her that way, but it was very common among the worldly practices in that day on occasion for a woman, if she was barren, because that was a real social stigma, 
to at times give one of her uh, maidservants as a secondary wife to her husband, and then she would, uh, the maidservant, conceive with the husband, and then that child would become legally their heir. And sometimes a barren woman would do this to acquire a child for herself, and then she would nurse and raise the child on her knee as if it was her very own. So Sarai takes this worldly idea, as many times we do, and that's how we try and in the flesh bring about the plans of God sometimes, which never works, but we turn to the ideas of Madison Avenue and Wall Street, and we say, hey, what's strategic, and and how do they do this in the world, and and what kind of marketing campaigns do they run, and what's the way that they do things? And so we look to the world and its programs and ideas and philosophies to kind of gain some of our ideas, and then we try and implement through the arm of flesh how to bring about God's plan through our own human efforts. So she says, the Lord's restrained me. So she says, please go into my maid, verse 2, perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram, unfortunately, in his passivity, it says, heeded the voice of Sarai. So he gives in to this suggestion that she makes as she prompts and encourages him to just, hey, let's do this, let's help God out He gives a concession to that, obeys his wife's voice, and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So she went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I've gave my maid into your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, as we saw as we left off last time, it says Hagar fled from Sarai's presence. So it works out, as we said last time, initially everything seems like it works out. And a lot of times when we, in an effort of the flesh, try and fulfill God's plans or God's promises, a lot of times it works at first. And initially we say, see that? It worked out. So I guess that is what God wanted. Uh, Yes, we didn't pray about it or we didn't go about it God's way or we didn't go according to the way that Scripture says God's will is, but It worked, so I guess God's okay with that. I guess it's acceptable. And a lot of times initially we may see success and some sense of fulfillment. But very quickly afterwards, things begin to produce the bad fruit that they always do. You know, the Bible tells us, be not deceived, God is not mocked. And what a man sows, he also reaps. And and if we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. And though we may see initial fruit, outward evidence that it's looking like it's working out, The truth of the matter is once the harvest starts to come very quickly, you see that sowing the flesh produces corruption and the whole thing starts corrupting real quick. And it starts breaking down and it starts deteriorating and everybody starts getting the taste in their mouth of the bad fruit, of the rotten, poisonous condition that it's causing. And that's what happened right away. Hagar, once she realized she was pregnant, she then sort of began to to look down upon Sarai, her mistress, as if, you know, well, I'm obviously the better wife because I was able to conceive. And, and there's this tension that begins right away between Sarai and her maidservant Hagar, who she had just given to Abram to conceive with. Abram, again, in passivity, rather than take control, he just, again, turns things over to Sarai. And he says, look, she's your maidservant. This was your idea. Do what you want with her. 
And as we left off, we saw Sarai dealt very harshly with Hagar, so she mistreated her. She was cruel to her. Hagar becomes the casualty in the process. And whenever we sow to the flesh and we try and do things in the flesh, there are always human casualties. Because we cannot walk in the flesh, the Bible says, and please God. And secondarily, we cannot walk in the flesh and properly care and treat people the way God intends us to. When we walk in the flesh, Galatians 5 tells us the way that we act when we walk in the flesh, and it's not very pretty. It's the exact opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. We're unkind, we're cruel, we're, you know, we're, we have selfish ambitions, and, and we're harsh and, and mean, and, and, and the product of the flesh is that we're going to treat people wrongly. And here, Hagar now becomes the casualty of their walk in the flesh and their endeavor to do this in the flesh. And now this Ishmael is going to be created, as we'll see. And Hagar now flees from her presence. She just says, you know what, this is wrong, I'm being mistreated. And she, as we said last time, runs away from the problem because she wants relief. She doesn't stay and look for resolution. Her error, as we're going to see tonight, is that she runs from a problematic situation. And that's never God's intention. Maybe you've been mistreated. Maybe there's a problem, whatever, and, and something hurtful happens. And a lot of times the tendency is we want to gain relief. So we, in an effort, you know, I want relief. I want out of this. I've been mistreated. It's not right that I'm treated this way. It's not right that I was talked that way. It's not right my boss or my company did this to me or my husband or my wife did this to me or, or somebody in this church treated me. So, so typically we instantaneously, our reaction is we want relief and we try and run from our problems. And that's not God's heart. God wants us to resolve our problems, not run from problems. She now flees and runs away from this situation because of the mistreatment. Verse 7 says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. So Hagar is now on her way back to Egypt. She decides that's it. This is not right. I was mistreated. I was used and abused. And in a sense, she was. She was, was right in that justification of the mistreatment. And she is now on her way, it says, back to the land of Egypt. At this point, she stops by a spring of water in the wilderness. And now the angel of the Lord, interesting, it says, the angel of the Lord found her there where she was. Here's the first time in the Bible this term, the angel of the Lord, shows up. We'll see it many, many times throughout the Old Testament. And many times when this term, the angel of the Lord, is used, it is used as a reference to a theophany or a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus himself, prior to the time when he experiences his incarnation of being born of the Virgin Mary, when he actually takes flesh upon himself, steps out of eternity and steps into the present realm, we have these theophanies or pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. And many times when we read of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, that's what this is a reference to. I don't think every time it's a reference to that, and we need to be careful when we, when we see it in the Scripture and, and try and discern contextually if that's what it's a reference to. It seems here to me that this is what you have here is the Lord finding her and ministering to her. Interesting, he finds this woman 
who's a pagan woman, and he finds her, interestingly enough, by a spring of water, by a well. He knows everything about her situation, and he ministers to her very compassionately and caringly. Think about John chapter 4. What's that the story of? Jesus finding a woman who was a pagan woman by a well, and he knows everything about her, and he meets her and finds her where she's at, and he ministers to her very caringly and compassionately by revealing himself to her. And here we find, I believe, the Lord, interesting, found her in her wilderness experience. And isn't it so true that for many of us, maybe it was when we were going through one of the most painful, hard, and difficult times in our life, And we're in the wilderness or maybe we're on the run and God isolates us and we're in that spot where we're hurting or going through something very hard. That that's when the Lord comes and finds us and he comes and seeks us out there and he reveals himself to us. And I love what it says. Let's say she found the angel of the Lord. It says the angel of the Lord found her went and reached out to her and ministered to her right where she was. Well, the angel of the Lord comes, verse 8, and says, Hagar, notice, Sarai's maid. Take notice, not Abram's wife. They might have pulled their little uh, idea of, hey, you marry my husband and have a child. But notice, obviously, uh, God doesn't recognize the marriage (laughs) because from God's perspective, it wasn't according to God's design. Interesting, the Lord refers to her as Sarai's maid, not Abram's wife. Sarai, Abram's maid, or excuse me, Hagar, Sarai's maid, he says, where have you come from and where are you going? And she answered, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. So the angel of the Lord speaks to her and asks her two questions. Where have you come from and where are you going? Where have you come from and where are you going? I I think it's a question sometimes when the Lord finds us in a hard spot, in a difficult season, maybe when we're hurting or we're going through something hard, and the Lord kind of asks us a searching question or two like that once in a while. He kind of calls us to a place of inventory. I don't know about you, but the times in my life, maybe when I'm hurting, or maybe when I've really gone through something hard and I'm kind of limping along and I'm in a difficult place. It seems those are the times, isn't it, when the Lord comes and reveals himself and he kind of asks you those really searching questions about your own life. He says things like, hey, where have you come from? Think about where you've come from. Think about it. Where have you come from? And a lot of times he also says, and where are you going? Where, where are you going? Where have you come from? What's behind you? And what are you trying to do here? Where are you going at this point in your life? And maybe that's a question the Lord has been asking you recently, or maybe he's proposing to you tonight. Where have you come from and where are you going? Where are you going right now? She, in her situation, was going in a direction she wasn't supposed to. She says, I'm fleeing from the presence of of my mistress Sarai. I'm getting away from what was happening that was hurting me. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. So the instruction of the Lord as she was fleeing and running away from her problem was return and submit yourself to the proper authority that existed over your life. You need to turn around and go back from what you're running from 
and you need to submit yourself back under the authority. Yes, she mistreated you, but yet that is the place and the position where God has called you to be at right now. So God gives this instruction to her, return and submit. And in essence, by her returning and submitting when she was running from her problem, really, that was her ultimate submission to the will of God. And many times that's God's instruction when we're fleeing from a problem and we're trying to just get away and get relief and not deal with it. A lot of times God says, no, you need to go back to the problem. You need to face it head on and you need to submit yourself to what I would have you to do in the situation. The Bible tells us to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will lift us up in due time. And a lot of times we want to just hit the escape hatch and get away. And God says, no, here's how things begin to be resolved when there's a problem. When you return to what is right and you submit yourself to my will for you in that situation. And that, that's not an easy thing to do a lot of times. It's tough to submit ourselves to the authority ultimately of God in our life in whatever way it may be and to say, all right, Lord, this hurts and it's hard, but I want to be submitted to you. So I'm going to submit myself to what you want. I'm going to submit myself to your will, not my will, because that's the problem. When we're running from problems, usually we're pursuing our will. We're trying to just get away and go do our thing. And God says, no, no, no. I want you to submit to what I want in this situation. And I want you to be submissive to resolving this and bringing it to a proper and a healthy resolution. So the instruction, difficult as that probably was for her to hear, return Go back to your mistress, submit yourself under her hand. And then the angel of the Lord gives her an encouragement. He says to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall be not be counted for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are with child and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. So notice here the Lord speaks to her and tells her a couple things. He tells her, number one, that he knows that she's pregnant at this point. He tells her, number two, what the sex of the child was going to be, even though she's only in the early days of her conception. God says, you're going to have a son. This was before the days of sonograms or anything else. You know, you, God just, this is what you're going to have. You're going to have a son. The Lord tells her, uh, and you shall call his name Ishmael, which literally means God hears. And it says here, because the Lord has heard you in your affliction. Again, reminding her that in her affliction, as she was no doubt probably crying out in her wounded condition and, and, and looking for some help and comfort in her pain, God says, look, I want you to name this child Ishmael, God hears, because I want you to always remember that when you were in your affliction and pain, that the one true and living God came and found you. And he revealed himself to you in your pain. When nobody else could comfort you, God could. When nobody else came to you in your loneliness and your isolation and in your hardship, God came and found you and comforted you and revealed himself to you and ministered to you when nobody else was there and you were hurting and you were all alone. So he says, name him Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. Now, take notice as well as this process is happening and the Lord is giving a promise and an assurance to her that this child of hers would be multiplied and and would uh, expand in his generations as well. 
consider this pregnancy, again, is this pregnancy really something that was by God's design? Well, in essence, the Bible tells me that one man and one woman are to live in a lifelong monogamous marriage and that they are to conceive and to have children. But uh, in this situation, you have Abram taking his maidservant, sleeping with her, and, and then conceiving a child. And to me, what a beautiful thing, because in a sense... Here is, if you would have in the Bible, a situation where a pregnancy happens on not so good a terms. A conception takes place and God permits a child to be conceived, in a sense, outside of the proper way and boundaries in which God intends. But take notice that God cares and cherishes that life just as much. God didn't say, you know what, this is kind of a not-too-good pregnancy situation, so let's do away with this. Or God says, no, you're going to have a son, and this is what his name's going to be. And God still values the life. He still cherishes the life. And, and here with this beautiful description, the angel of the Lord says, you're going to have a child. He's going to be a son. Call his name Ishmael. And then verse 12 probably isn't what any mother wants to hear. And he shall be a wild man. You know, <laughs> I mean, at that point, I went, oh, great. You know, <laughs> I mean, just all of a sudden, you know, this next revelation about, you know, you're going to have a son. And, and name him God hears, and trust me, I'm going to hear you a lot because he's going to be a wild man. In other words, I'll be hearing you a lot, Hagar, as a mother, talking to me all the time because your son is going to be a wild man. And his hand shall be against every man, that is, he would be antagonistic. He would be an antagonistic t- type personality. And every man's hand shall be against him. And he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. Not only that is his brethren, uh, other descendants uh, and family members of, of Ishmael's line, but in the presence of his brethren where Isaac would be born. And of course, it's a reference there to dwelling in the presence of the nation of Israel. And of course, we know that Ishmael, this child that is to be born between Abram and Hagar, basically Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nations or the Arab tribes that exist today, and how they exist in the presence, they coexist together with the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, which came through Isaac and then Jacob down through that line of Abram. But take notice, God in advance, as soon as the first descendant of the tribes of the Arab people were born, which primarily became uh, Muslim Arabs, and of course all of the tension that exists there over in the Middle East, that God said... The nature of this child, which seems to have carried through, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man. That is, he would kind of have an antagonistic type spirit. And together with that, and every man's hand against him, in other words, from his line, there will be constant conflict, antagonism and conflict. This child will be the the seedbed of those kind of things dwelling among his brethren Israel. Well, verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. For she said, have I also here seen him who sees me? And therefore the well was called Ber Lahoi Rai. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Bered. And of course, the name of that well basically means the well of the one who lives and sees. So she named that territory after her experience with God there. And what a beautiful title that she gives to God. Verse 13, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So take notice, 
she recognized it was the Lord, Jehovah God, who was speaking to her in the presence of this angel of the Lord. Seems she recognized the divinity of this experience that she was having. And she said, you are the God who sees. Man, that's a great title for the Lord. And, and if you've experienced something and gone through it, it sure helps, doesn't it, to just know when you're going through a hard time that he's the God who sees. It'd be really discouraging if we went through hard times, occasions where maybe we went through mistreatment, when we're slighted and mistreated as a job, or we're mistreated in our marital relationship, or we're mistreated in some way through some other relationship or circumstance, or even mistreated in the church or, or in the world or whatever. It would really be tough to go through those times and think that God just turns a blind eye and God's not aware, and that God doesn't see it. But to know that God sees and that God's fully aware of exactly what is happening to you and exactly what has happened to you, hurtful as it may have been, to know that God sees and that he's a just and a loving father and that he will reconcile things on your behalf and he will address the mistreatment that was done to you in such a way where we don't have to carry it around and live like a victim forever and think this is just unfair and so forever and ever and ever we become paralyzed in a victim-type attitude because we feel like nobody saw. I just experienced it and nobody saw. And a lot of times, I think that's one of the things that contributes to a person becoming paralyzed and just feeling like a victim the rest of the... When you realize, oh yes, somebody did see. The most important person saw. The God who sees saw exactly what happened to me, and therefore, I can resolve that the God who sees will go to work on my behalf and will take care of that. You know, I remember when we were uh, living back in York, one of the uh, homes that we had purchased there, uh, the uh, seller didn't put on the disclosure that the basement had a very bad leaking issue, a very bad water issue. And we moved into this property that we had bought and were there just a matter of a few months. And my wife gives me a call and she says, uh, you might want to get home right now. I said, what's the problem? She says, we have 11 inches of water in our basement. <laughs> Eleven, a foot of water over the entire basement. Well, of course, th this became something that became then a repeated and a constant problem. Every time we'd get rain and water, and, and of course, there was nothing put on the seller's disclosure, so I contacted my realtor, talked to him, he said, look, what do you, what do you want to do? We can go after him here, this and that, prayed about it, I thought it through. I said, you know what, Jonathan, I'll tell you the truth, I, I don't. I, I, I don't want to do anything. I said, because here's why. I said, if somebody did one of my kids wrong, God help them for what I would do to any human being who would touch, hurt or harm in any way, one of my children. So I said, you know what? Rather than me do anything, I know God sees and God is aware what has just been done to me as one of his sons. So I'll tell you what. I'm just going to let God deal with the individual who just dealt wrong with me and God addressed that. I'll take care of the problem here. The Lord will lead us through reconciling this. But I know that God saw and that's going to be good enough for me. And I'm going to just let God address the situation. And somehow that became a, a sense of release to me. Amen. To just say, you know what? God sees. God's aware. And there's a tremendous comfort in that when we're hurt or when we're hurting to know that God hasn't turned a blind eye. 
He knows exactly what's been done to you, exactly what's going on in your life. And he's able to come and minister to you personally. He comes to Hagar and he ministers to her and he's compassionate and he's caring. And he meets her in her pain and he speaks to her and he assures her, look, don't you worry. I know about this pregnancy and I'm going to take care of you. You go back. I'll be with you. Go back to your mistress and, 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 and solve this situation. He says, go return to Sarai, submit yourself and just trust me. And I know about this child and I'll make sure that everything works out on your behalf and comforts her. So Hagar, it says, verse 15, bore Abram a son. And Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So at this point now, 86. Now take note, chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old. Well, it doesn't take a mathematician to recognize that we just jumped 13 years there. Thirteen years of complete silence from the Scripture's record. Now, that means at this point, Ishmael's a 13-year-old young man, and there's been 13 years that have elapsed between the time when Sarai and Abram tried to fulfill the plan of God through the endeavors and the efforts of their own flesh and tried to use the flesh to bring about and fulfill the plans of God in their life. So 13 years has passed, 13 years that we know nothing about. Nothing is recorded for us. A 13-year silence. He's now 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. So he now gets another revelation, another appearance from the Lord. Was God silent for 13 years? I don't know. The Scripture doesn't tell us. It is interesting to take note that after an endeavor of trying to produce something in the flesh to bring about the plan of God for their life through their own means, that there is an eerie silence for 13 years. And God just lets the fruit of their flesh be something that exists for a while, and there's nothing recorded. And then all of a sudden, it seems the silence is broken, and the Lord appears to Abram and says to him, first thing he says to Abram as he appears, I am almighty God. Abram, you who thought that somehow I wasn't sufficient to perform with my power what I promised with my mouth, you that somehow thought that my promise couldn't be performed by me, and therefore you thought you had to produce it through your own efforts. Abram, I am almighty God. First thing he hears. The term there literally in the Hebrew is El Shaddai, which people debate over what the connotation and meaning is. It seems to be a, a reference of God revealing himself, El Shaddai, as the all-sufficient one. I am the all-sufficient God. In other words, I am the God who is a God of all-sufficiency who can do anything without any limitations. I have the capability and the sufficiency to perform anything, to accomplish anything. Abram, I am almighty God, and he says to him, therefore, the re next requirement to Abram, walk before me and be blameless. Simple interpretation, Abram, I am the all-sufficient God. So listen, no more of these Ishmael things. 
No more, let's cut out this Ishmael stuff. Abram, let's not make another one of these. Abram, I am the all-sufficient God, capable to do anything at all, a miracle-working God. Therefore, you just walk before me in my presence and be blameless. Let's not be guilty and have something to blame on your account anymore for something else that you've done through the efforts of the flesh. Walk before me, he says. The idea of walk before me simply just indicates to to walk in God's presence, to be conscious of the presence of God. God was asking Abram as he appeared to him, Abram, I want you to live your life and walk your life in a continual awareness of my presence with you. As if you realize every day what you're doing, Abram, that you are doing it before me. Man, such an important thing for us to realize as we live out our lives. The Bible says Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. Here, Abram was told, walk before me. And such an important thing for us to realize that, yes, we walk with God, and we understand that by way of relationship, but the consciousness of the presence of God, to realize that when we walk out our life, that we are walking before the presence of God, and that God sees everything I do. And God sees everywhere I go and how I walk and how I don't walk. God sees if I'm walking in love or if I'm walking in light, if I'm walking in the spirit or I'm walking in the flesh. And to realize, Lord, I'm walking before you. You are evaluating everything that I'm doing because there's something really purifying that happens in a person's life when they're conscious of the presence of God. That we have a God consciousness and we walk before him realizing that he is evaluating everything that we're doing. Walk before me and be blameless. Again, does the word blameless mean sinless? Of course not. That's impossible. No person can be sinless. It doesn't indicate perfection. The idea of blameless simply means to walk in integrity. To be without guilt. In other words, live a life in such a way whereby there are not things that we can be blamed for. Not things that are on our account where people can blame us and say, hey, you know what? You say this, but but what about this? And you're doing this right now. And he says, no, live a clean life. Walk before me and live a life that's blameless where there's not stains on your reputation. There are not things that people can hold you to blame for because your hands aren't involved in anything. You know, clean hands, pure heart. My heart's pure, my hands are clean. I'm not to be blamed for something that I'm involved in that I really shouldn't be. Walk before me, Abram. Be blameless. I'm Almighty God. Trust me to do what I said in your life. No more of this trying things in the flesh. In verse 2, he says to Abram, And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Again, God's reaffirming this promise to Abram, reminding him again of this covenant that he had made with him. And then Abram fell on his face. And I bet he did. And you know why? Because this is God's grace. Think about it. Here he produces this Ishmael, this work of the flesh, If you or I were God, we, after 13 years of silence, probably would have showed up and said, and by the way, Abram, you are fired. I have found someone else, and for the past 13 years, I've already started my plan. But what happens? After 13 years of dealing with the fruit and the consequence of his own flesh, God shows up and he says, Abram, I still got a plan for you. Abram, I haven't given up on my purpose for you. 
The same promise I gave you, Paul tells us in Romans, the gifts and call of God are irrevocable. And Abram, you might have taken a little detour and you might have got impatient. You tried to make it happen in the flesh. But Abram, my covenant still remains with you. I still intend to use you. And I still intend to fulfill my plan and my purpose through your life. And I haven't forgotten you. He's going to tell him by the end of the chapter, Abram, the problem is there's a set time. You just tried to get ahead of my timetable and you got impatient and you tried to make it happen in the flesh. Abram, what I'm trying to do is exhaust every human possibility. I'm trying to drive, dry up every fountain of your human capability. You're 99 now. The fountains are really starting to dry up. He's 99, Sarah's 90. The fountains of human ability to accomplish God's plan and fulfill the promise is something that is going completely out the window, and that's what God was doing. He was bringing it to a place where it would be utterly supernatural, where there would be no other way it could come to pass other than a supernatural miracle of God's Spirit taking place. And, of course, because this all foreshadows a supernatural birth in many ways that would ultimately take place in the time of Christ and his conception miraculously to be born in a similar way later on. It typifies all of these things. So, Abram, I'm making my covenant with you. Abram, astonished and no doubt just overwhelmed by the grace of God, falls to his face as the Lord appears to him. And notice, when the Lord truly appears to someone, it is overwhelming. You know, I highly discount people who talk about having an experience with God and they're very arrogant and flippant. And, you know, what I see in the Bible is that when the Lord really gives a revelation of his presence to someone, it is a humbling, overwhelming experience. God reveals himself to people and you see them falling on their face or bowing, just feeling overwhelmed. It says Abram here, as the Lord appears to him, he fell on his face, and I love verse 3, it says, and God talked with him. I love that. God appears to him, and God talks with him. Do, do you know the Bible calls Abram later on the friend of God? James tells us that, that he's, that he's the friend of God. And what do friends do? They talk with each other. Imagine that. The living God, the creator of the heavens and earth, wants to talk with you. That should astonish us, that God's that personal, that God has personal things, promises for your life, callings and plans for your life, instructions and things that he wants to say to you, and God wants to talk with you. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. And how wonderful to know that God, as awesome as he is, condescends and he talks with us. He talks specifically to you and he wants to tell you things and he wants you to be able to hear his voice and to know what it is that he wants to say with you. So God talks with Abram now in the next number of verses. It is all about the grace of God and God's doing all the talking and Abram's on his face doing all the listening. A lot of times the problem is, is that we're trying to talk so much to God, God can't get a word in edgewise. If you've ever had a conversation, people are like that sometimes. If you ever talk to somebody, man, would you just be quiet for a minute so I can say something? And, and, and sometimes we're like that with God. I think we're almost af afraid of silence or afraid of quietness or, or we're spending so much time rambling off things to God that sometimes we don't give God a chance to talk to us and to say the things that he wants to say to us. Well, Abram here is humbled. He's submitted. God talked with him saying, Abram, as for me, verse 4, behold... 
My covenant is with you. Man, that must have made him feel so touched. Abram, my covenant, I didn't go give it to somebody else. Abram, I'm still going to use you. You're still the man that I'm going to use. My covenant is with you. I didn't go offer it and give the plan to someone else. And you shall be a father of, notice, many nations. Here's this guy, he's still barren. (laughs) He's 99, he's hearing this again now. Now he's not just going to be a father of a nation. Now God's increasing the stakes. You're going to be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And again, the the word Abraham literally means that father of nations. So here's this guy. He's 99 years old. His wife's still barren. He's been waiting for the promise of God since he was 75. He's 99. It's been 24 years. And here's God again. Can you imagine? 24 years. God's sharing the promise again. Still no fulfillment. Still waiting for the same promise. If I wait 24 days for God's promise, I'm ready to just give up and quit. This guy's been waiting 24 years. Hearing the promise of God. Hearing the promise of God. Waiting in faith. Waiting in faith. And now God says, Abram, let me expand a little more details. You're just not going to be a father of a nation. You're going to be a father of many nations. Not just through the descendants of Isaac and Jacob, but of course Ishmael now, his son, that was also born, would be the father of the Arab nations. So picture him going around. Here he is, he shows up. Hey, what's your name? Abraham. Oh, father of nations. Interesting name. And their names, the entomology, had meanings in that. They, well, that's, that's interesting. Father of nations. Wow, I mean, boy, you must, you must be quite a prolific guy. I mean, uh, you know, ha- how many children do you have? You're 90, uh, none. None? Why would your name... And and imagine walking this out in faith, believing the promise of God, knowing God spoke to him, but seeing nothing of the tangible fulfillment of it, waiting and believing by faith. And of course, that's why he's the picture, our father, the father of faith that we look to because we live a life by faith. Faith is the evidence of things not seen, the Bible tells us. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. We wait and hope for something that we don't see. We live life by faith, but trust that the promises of God will be fulfilled. Verse 6, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you and kings. Notice, plural, shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you, notice again, God says, the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So again, the reaffirmation not only of his lineage, his descendants, But again, God confirms and expands. God says, I'm giving the land to your descendants. And now God says in verse 8, as an everlasting possession. Now that's a pretty strong contract. The land belongs to your descendants, Abram, as an everlasting possession. That's a pretty strong indication of who God wants the land to belong to forever. Not just for a set period of time. Well, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll give it to him for a while. We'll take it back. No, God says an everlasting possession. So God reaffirms his covenant. 
And God said to Abram, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, God says, and it shall be, notice, circle this, a sign of the covenant between me and you. So God's making a covenant with Abram, Abraham now, we have to work through that and go to saying Abraham now. God makes a covenant with Abraham, and notice he tells him in verse uh, 10 and 11 here that there would be a sign, a symbol of this covenant. Later on, God will make a covenant with the nation of Israel nationally, and, and under the Mosaic covenant will be the sign of the Sabbath. The Sabbath will be the sign, that weekly observance. But God's covenant with Abraham was indicated by a sign of circumcision, a marking in the flesh of all the males that was basically an outward sign of an inward spiritual condition and relationship that they were to have with God. That Abram and his descendants basically were to be a people. And the idea there of the cutting away of the flesh. And again, the promise was based upon the seed of Abram. So it only seems understandable then that God would say, okay, therefore the marking, the sign of this covenant will be upon the male reproductive organ whereby the seed of Abram would come forth to produce the descendants. And that's what the covenant was based upon. So God says the sign will be the sign of circumcision and it was to be an outward marking, but it wasn't just the physical sign or it wasn't just the, uh, you know, the, the, the circumcision process itself that somehow produced something. That was just the sign. It was just the outward indication, a mark on their bodies to represent an inward condition spiritually that they had with God. The picture there, again, the idea is they were to be a people who did not live after the flesh. It was a cutting away of the flesh to remind them through that physical sign that they were a people who did not live after the flesh or after the impulses of the flesh, but that they were to be a people instead who were governed by God and who lived after the impulses of the Spirit, a higher nature instead of living by just the impulses of the flesh. So it was a cutting away of the flesh. And of course, we know that that's ultimately what God's heart was. When we read later on in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10, 15, and 16, listen to this. It says, The Lord delighted in you and loved you and chose you. Therefore, listen, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So you see what God's intention was behind us. Circumcise your hearts. Cut away the fleshly tendencies of your heart. Have a circumcised heart that it might live after the Spirit instead. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So it was a covenant sign. Of course, when we get over to the New Testament, we see there it being referred to as well. Paul, as he's trying to prove being justified by works, or not being justified by works, but being justified by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, and how the Jews would ultimately, unfortunately, start to rely upon this outward sign. And they thought if they just went through the ceremony of circumcision, that that was what made them righteous. And Paul was trying to refute this, saying, no, 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 you're missing the whole point. 
That's just an outward sign of an inward condition, a circumcised heart to God. And they were trying to say, hey, we went through the ritual of circumcision, so we're right with God. And Paul said, no, no, you're missing the whole point there. Paul says this in Romans 2, 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not from men, but from God. Paul says, no, you're missing the point. It's just an indicator. You know, in many of the same ways as Christians, people make the mistake, I think, today among the church in the same way with water baptism. And they think that the practice of water baptism gives them a spiritual standing with God when the reality is water baptism is something that God has given to the Christian as an outward sign, a symbolic, a symbolic act of obedience to indicate as a sign to the world, I am dead to my old life and I am a new creation in Christ. But water baptism, apart from the inward heart condition, does nothing. It does absolutely all. All you did was get wet. All you did was get wet. You know, as I read Romans 2, where Paul says, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. If you take away the word Jew, put in the word Christian, and change circumcision to baptism, it works really well. He is not a Christian who is one outwardly, nor is baptism that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Christian who is one inwardly. And baptism is that of the heart in the spirit. In the same way, that, that it's a sign that God has given to us, even as it was a sign that God gave to the Jews in the Abrahamic covenant. So this cutting away of the flesh, in verse 12, says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Interestingly enough, eight days old. They have done studies to find out that on the eighth day is when the human body produces vitamin K, which is essential for the coagulating properties of blood clotting. Interesting that God said wait to the eighth day because if they circumcised the child before that time, the child could have bled to death. You know, it goes to show you again, isn't evolution wonderful? It's, it's ridiculous. Creation is wonderful. God created our bodies. And he, interesting that God said circumcise the child on the eighth day. Now today, they do circumcise children right away, but they give them a shot of vitamin K to help guarantee and assure that there won't be unnecessary additional bleeding as a safeguard in the process. But God here says, wait to the eighth day. Interestingly enough, their body will be most prepared. I don't want to harm the child. And every male child in your generations who's born in your house or brought with your money from a foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and who's bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh again for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So Abram, your sons, as well as all your servants, or anyone that you pay to acquire as a servant, or who wants to become a part of the nation of Israel, again, notice, God says they must all submit to the sign of circumcision as an outward indication of the commitment that they've made to serve the one true and living God. In verse 14, he says, any uncircumcised male, no matter who it is, he says, that person shall be cut off. Why? Because that was willful disobedience. 
they knew the word of God, and if they refused to submit to the word of God, God said, then, then they're choosing to be willfully disobedient. And God says, therefore, put them out. Don't let them live as a pretender among you if they're not truly committed and among the people of God being governed over by him. Well, Abram, excuse me, God then said to Abram, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah. And she shall be, have that name, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her, and then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of peoples shall be from her. And again, old poor Abraham here. Imagine him going home and telling his wife again. <laughs> this thing's been going on for 24 years. Honey, God spoke to me again, and now he said he wants you to call me Abraham because I'm going to be a father of nations. And honey, by the way, we're changing your name too. What? You know, and yeah, he says that, that your name is now going to be Sarah, you're going to be Sarah. And again, he goes home again, God changing over this. Because why? Because God was changing something in them. God was changing. And only God changes people. Only God changes people. You know, God, God took Peter and took him from Simon to Peter. He took Saul and made him Paul. God changes people. We don't change people. That's the hard thing. We don't change ourselves, and we can't change people. Only God can change people. And here God speaks to Abram of how he would now have a new name. Sarai would have a new name. And Abram fell on his face, it says, and he laughed, and he said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? He said, this is, this is astonishing, Lord, he says. And Sarah, who is ninety years old, shall she bear a child? No wonder God is going to tell him name the child laughter because both he and Sarah laugh when they hear the promise of God. And Abram said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So he says, God, again, he's had Ishmael for 13 years. God, what about Ishmael? What's going to happen with his life? And I think what what's happening here as well, Abram, though he seems to go back and forth, here's Abram saying, God, can't you just fulfill your promise through Ishmael? And what he's trying to present to God the work of his flesh and saying, God, can't you just redeem the work of my flesh? God, is he's already around. He's already born. He's already 13. So rather than this just be a waste, here, how about Ishmael? Can't you just fulfill your plan through Ishmael? How about that? Just Can you take an, an, a different option? How about this option? He's proposing to God an option for how, hey, God, how about you just use this? Take what I'm offering to you and bless it. And we want to do that. Here, God. Bless this. Instead of, God, what do you want to do? How do you want to do it? God, here's this. How about you bless this? Let Ishmael live before you. And God said, no. <laughs> that, um, that's what God said. Well, Lord, how about this? And he, we propose, would you bless this? And he says, no. No. I won't bless your idea, and I won't bless what you want. He says, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, with a child that would be born through Sarah, his wife, Isaac, whose name means laughter, for an everlasting covenant with his descendants. And behold, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. And again, the Arab people have become a, a tremendously prosperous group of tribes. I mean, they sit on some of the most incredible oil reserves in existence on the planet. 
So God didn't totally abandon and forsake the Arab people. God loves them too. God wants to see them be saved as well. But his plan, his covenant, his chosen people would be with the nation of Israel, the Jews. But my covenant, verse 21, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. And then he finished talking with Abram and God went up from Abraham So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all born in his house, who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins, notice, that very same day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ouch. Let's just be real. And Ishmael, his son, what 13-year-old would like this? When he was 13 years old, he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And that very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in his house, were bought with money from a foreigner, that is all his servants and slaves, were circumcised with him. You want to talk about direct obedience. The same day the word of the Lord comes, Abram says, okay, if that's what you say, I sure don't understand it, and it's sure going to be difficult for me and everybody else, but I will obey. I will obey. And by faith, he obeys the word of God. And take into consideration, it was pretty costly to obey God's word. It involved some pain. It involved some personal difficulty. It involved sacrifice for himself and others involved with him. But he was a man of faith and he was a man of obedience. He didn't have all the explanations. He didn't have all the answers. And I'll tell you this. This is something that astonishes me in reading this portion of Scripture as well. What incredible respect. Everyone in Abraham's house must have had for him to have all complied with that. Can you imagine? His 13-year-old son, all his servants. Remember, there were 318 trained servants. And you know there was some verbal resistance at first to the whole thing. And nobody was, oh, sure, we'll go through with that. You know, he was struggling himself. But what incredible respect they must have had for this man, Abraham, to say, you know what? Okay, we'll walk it out in faith with you. We'll sacrifice with you. Boy, I hope and pray that God would make us people with that kind of influence. That when we are told to do something, that the same day God tells us, we'd be quickly obedient. Obedient in faith. Walking it out in faith. And in such a way that we would have such a respect among people around us that other people would say, if you're going to obey God, we'll obey God with you. And that they would follow along with us because of that influence. Powerful, powerful influence. Let's stand, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word and these chapters of scripture. Lord, we pray that your spirit would continue to water in our hearts and minds and souls through the week ahead what you've spoken to us. And that we could be not only hearers, but doers of your word as it applies to our own life. And we commit this week ahead to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.